Good day. You're listening to Free City Radio. I'm your host, Stefan Christophe in Geogiage, Montreal. Thank you so much for being with us. This is the 143rd edition of the program. On the broadcast this week, I am going to be continuing a focus on the COP15 meetings that happened in Montreal and the battles over the brackets, the struggles within the negotiations to include uh, Indigenous land rights, but also to fight against the opening of the International Protocol on Biodiversity to corporate interests, particularly around land and agriculture. I had a very insightful conversation with Tom Wakeford. He shared a lot of ideas uh, about the ways that uh, international tech giants are pushing their ways into agricultural systems, using digital technology to privatize further removing the control of local peasant and indigenous communities over their lands, uh, privatizing agricultural systems. Tom works with the ETC group. uh, That is an international uh, solidarity organization that uh, works on a global level to uh, defend the rights of indigenous communities um, and also promote efforts to work towards cooperative, non-corporate, non-colonial food systems. Uh, Their work is important. I would encourage you to look up the organization, ETC Group. I spoke with Tom, who was in London. Uh, He was part of the negotiations around COP15 uh, here in the city. So here's our conversation. Um, I'd encourage you to to listen. Uh, There's some very important details in this exchange with Tom. Maybe I could just ask you first, um, just as a, as a starting point, Tom, if you could just introduce yourself and share with us a bit about what is ETC Group and why were you present at the Montreal Summit on an International Biodiversity Protocol, COP15? I'm Tom Wakeford. I'm from the Etc. Collective. Uh, we're an international civil society organization undertaking participatory action research at the intersection of food sovereignty and the democratic control of technology. ETC Collective was active around the Montreal Biodiversity uh, Protocol meetings. There were protests outside. Um, I'm, I'm really happy to speak with you to get a sense of some of the sort of more nuanced issues that were happening. Um, so you talked about the effects of technology on biodiversity. Um, so c- can, can you talk a bit about why that was an important issue at the meetings in Montreal? I understand gene editing, also issues around claiming of DNA ownership, Uh, That can be in agriculture, but it also could be in species was an issue. Uh, A lot of companies have been moving on this, not just in recent years, but over the past decade. Maybe you could just draw out a bit of these issues that came up. Thank you so much. Happy to do that. So the Convention on Biological Diversity, which has, uh, has its origins in 1992, has been developed at exactly the same time that biotech corporations have been attempting to take control of agriculture as part of their effort to sell more of their pesticides and other agrochemicals. And 
the effect on biodiversity has been very, very clear. The decimation in numbers of insects, uh, soil organisms, birds, all these uh, things, plants. And the reason why this COP was important was for the first time in uh, three years, it was a possibility, sorry, four years, to actually uh, hold governments to account and have them hold each other account for this uh, kind of disaster that has been the sort of genetic engineering of our agricultural system. But the the reason lots of corporations sent huge delegations to the COP was to weaken the convention's existing controls on biotechnology. So that was the sort of fight going on sort of in between the the lines. Uh, it didn't tend to make the headlines internationally, but for smallholder farmers who are the ones who ha- uh, are attempting to cool the planet and are more successful uh, at it than any other form of agriculture, uh, it was a, a crucial thing for them and for the biodiversity they protect, both agricultural and, um, you might say, non-cultivated biodiversity. When you talk about agrochemical companies, you know, we can talk about huge international conglomerates. Bayer is one example. Uh, there's many others. Grain.org, uh, just you know, to put that out there, has done a, a lot of very important work uh, looking at smaller actors um, internationally, particularly recently uh, Israeli state-backed agribusness corporations uh, operating in Africa. Can you just describe for us why these corporations were present at the biodiversity meetings and specifically what they were hoping to gain by weakening the international biodiversity protocol? Yeah, I mean, agriculture's globally is at a, a really fascinating but dangerous place at the moment because having uh, had the sort of revolution in fertilisers being dumped on agricultural land and the industrialization of agriculture we saw in many parts of the world in the 20th century, ending with the so-called biotechnology revolution that, uh, uh, as I just mentioned, <laughs> really wasn't a good thing for biodiversity or uh, the farmers who, who protect it. We now have uh, the what is being called the the fourth industrial revolution or the biodigital convergence to use the jargon which is basically seeing the convergence of uh, the latest genetic techniques like CRISPR-Cas9 uh, which has made a lot of headlines and won Nobel Prizes for, for a couple of um, biologists a few years ago. The convergence of that with huge amounts of uh, money and desire to invest in the food sector from Silicon Valley, from the Googles, the Microsofts, the Amazon moguls, who've been making money digitally and now see the opportunity to make money from the food system. And what stands in their way of this biodigital convergence are the few sentences in the convention that actually says there has to be some form of risk assessment and uh, forward-looking assessment of the potential risks these technologies could have. 
Thank you so much for breaking that down. That's very clear and helpful. So when you talk about potential risks of biotech convergence uh, today uh, by Silicon Valley within the food system, we're going beyond agrochemicals. We're talking about sort of the systemization of the role of tech giants within agriculture. Can you break that down a big, bit more about some of the projects and ways that that these corporations were pushing to change the protocol and why it's important for us to sort of break that down and understand that. Yes. So at present, through the various elements of the Convention on Biological Diversity, and that includes the Cartagena Protocol, which was particularly uh, set up uh, after the people realised the risks that might arise from GMOs, uh, genetically modified organisms, there are provisions in the Convention on Biological Diversity that was being negotiated in in Montreal for new forms of genetic engineering to be properly assessed uh, for uh, uh, the views of First Nations, Indigenous peoples. Uh, all sorts of different groups in society, farmers, consumers, for them all to be kind of given an airing before these things were approved. And what several countries uh, were doing at the meeting in Montreal was trying to take that language out. So to basically say there'll be a free-for-all um, a sort of uh, lawless libertarian capitalism that essentially they got away with in many countries in the last uh, 20 years with GM crops. They wanted that for the next generation, which are far cheaper to produce and can also be combined with digital technologies. So sort of using drones to survey lands that then... Are, uh, the flora and fauna can be um, digitally measured and assessed, the soils can be uh, assessed, all that is fed into algorithms, then the land can be taken away from its present owners via various financial mechanisms and, and then used for intensive uh, industrial uh, genetically engineered agriculture, which is also tied to the carbon farming uh, and carbon markets. So this idea that it could be traded internationally as part of climate change agreements. So all that was in play in Montreal. Can you make a link between digital technology and agriculture and some of the interests that were at play and are at play in terms of GMO and, um, you know, bears one name, there's many others, but agrochemical companies can you link for people? Because I think that some people listening will remember the protests. Uh, for for example, in Sacramento, there was a huge convergence, uh, I believe, in 2007 or eight against GMOs uh, protests that have taken place. Uh, Monsanto was a huge target uh, um, that's been uh, folded into Bayer. But um, so the link between this sort of history of struggle against agrochemical companies and GMO uh, being enforced onto indigenous and peasant lands through farming, the dangers that is involved with this, and how is that linked to agro digital initiatives that were being um, pushed back against in the biodiversity protocol meetings in Montreal by groups like yours? Yeah, it was in terms of the negotiations in Montreal, I'd say these are 
forces that are not necessarily showing their colors in these negotiations. But to give an example uh, of two tech moguls who who were there, uh, who had their, their teams there lobbying and making friends um, for the future, uh, one was the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation that was promoting these extreme forms of genetic engineering called gene drives and associated with that are other technologies that may come even sooner uh, which uh, are called two things either self-spreading vaccines or gm viruses uh, and these were uh, these sort of technologies in general were were being promoted as things that could save endangered species uh, now the link with digital uh, wasn't made explicit in the negotiations, but in terms of um, the use of algorithms, apart from this obscure seeming set of negotiations, which we weren't part of, and I won't speak to in any depth, but um, digital sequence information, so DSI, uh, being the term that was banded around. And that was a negotiation about who owns those digital sequences. But I think where we see an immediate threat is in the use of algorithms, the use of artificial intelligence uh, by uh, huge data cloud companies like Google and Amazon and uh, Microsoft to grab data from farmers. So using uh, a farmer's phone where they are, um, say if they want a loan, it's made dependent on them handing data over um, for a certain time and also maybe being tied into certain products that require them to present data. So that's how the sort of digital enters into the world of a farmer and then they might get pulled into using particular genetic engineered um, variety or, or crop breed, sorry, or, or animal breed. So that's that's the sort of nexus. It's it's kind of at the moment. It's almost like they want to clear any regulation out of the way, and then they've got open season on doing these things. So um, it's a kind of subtle link that has its origins in the disputes uh, of. 20 odd years ago around Monsanto's attempt to bring in the Terminator seed, uh, which really was them saying, we're going to stop farmers keeping their seed. And uh, they haven't stopped with that desire. They're just doing it in a more subtle way that effectively would control every possible input into um, a farm or, or fishing activities or pastoralists for that matter. Can you draw out a bit that uh, a bit more um, connections that you see between digital tech giants uh, interventions into agriculture and international agribusiness companies. Um, just highlighting a bit more of that link for people. Yeah, so what's happened as um, digital companies have got richer and richer and they have seen the ability of social media to um, gather data from people. So your friends on Facebook, people you're contacting on Twitter, all that becomes the social cache. Uh, now, 
they are realising that if they can get all farmers onto the sort of agricultural equivalent of social media, which are these apps which are already being downloaded in North America, they're widely used, they want to push them out to Africa, Latin America, Asia Pacific. If they can get farmers and fisher folk onto them, then that gives them an ability to ecologically cash. So as well as having people's social connections, they can cache all that information about soils, about crops, about planting patterns, about weather, about what equipment does what. And then they can get effectively bypass having farmers at all. So farmers on the land, ultimately, as is happening uh, in the hype you see in, in advertising in the West, uh, about you know drones uh, running farms and uh, 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 robot swarms and things like that. That that's something that can be replicated in any landscape. Um, we think uh, uh, etc. It's very unlikely to work at all, let alone be a sustainable form of agriculture. But that's their their way in is to gather the data from the farmers and then use that to eliminate the farmers and fisher folk themselves. This moves towards the um, questions about uh, the convergence of essentially neo-colonial infrastructures of power as expressed through corporations in regards to controlling land, peasant land, indigenous land through digital technologies, uh, relationship to agriculture, building on controlling the seeds, which you made a link with if we think back to the battles against Monsanto, just underline this and thinking about corporations controlling the seeds. Um, thank you for outlining the ways that the data information of farmers and peasant communities, indigenous controlled areas is being harvested by tech giants. Obviously, your presence and many others at the bio at the biodiversity uh, protocol summit in Montreal was attempting to push back against this uh, convergence. Um, so can you talk a bit about how it's important for us to sort of think about the multitude of voices that are issuing critiques and sounding the alarm on this? Because the way you've described it, it's very overwhelming, but also on the ground in many areas, um, Asia Pacific, um, Sub-Saharan Africa, Latin America, there's a lot of pushback. Um, so, yeah, if you could just highlight a bit about some of the movements that are critiquing this reality that you've outlined. Yes, I think it's important to do a reality check of what is actually happening as opposed to the hype that is flying around about this. Because the reality we hear from our allies in the global south is that vast proportions of smallholder farmers, of fisher folk, do not have a um, smartphone, let alone a, a laptop or a tablet with the capability to do this right now. Uh, and the in the short term, they're unlikely to. But I think the the what organisations like Grain have have highlighted already. Um, along with La Via Campesina and, and other organisations linked to the food sovereignty movement, is the danger that this could increase the grabbing of land from uh, uh, peasant farmers, indigenous peoples, uh, because 
uh, we we know already that in many areas uh, l- land can be taken off people without their consent, and this in a sense will increase the stakes uh, of that land. It will increase its value to these um, global corporations that. Uh, in a sense, they they want a return from their investment, and that return uh, depends on uh, monetizing the land in a way that uh, companies, agrochemical companies, have been doing for for decades. But this is, in a sense, owning the data is a new way of financializing that land. And um, I, I should say that I don't think anybody's saying that. Uh, uh, Anybody should be told to to sort of downgrade their phone or stop using their their phone. But I think it's um, being aware that the data that's collected at the moment is most likely, if you upload it, will end up being owned by either Google or Amazon or Microsoft. That's uh, uh, and and there are uh, sort of Asian equivalents. As well, so a, a small handful of organisations will own that data. It is possible that there could be systems set up that allow farmers control over that data, but we're not there yet. So that's the sort of dialogue we've been having with groups um, in uh, uh, both global south and north. Last point: If we think back to uh, social movements. Um, mobilizations over generations. I mean, if we're thinking about um, collective uh, public farming lands or public control over infrastructure, um, you know, there are um, many examples of ways that the common spaces in communities in our life don't have to be controlled by corporations. And this connection between past examples and also the movements that fought for public ownership or collectivity um, uh, won <laughs> in the past and and how that sort of link uh, needs to be made in terms of understanding the power of um, international tech giants as they move towards agriculture, but also beyond. Uh, just any f- comments about that? Ever since the Industrial Revolution, society has largely stumbled into different technologies, often driven by technologies that made money for uh, a small group of people. And one of the things that etc. we have talked about for many years and have initiatives in different parts of the world that we support uh, that are doing right now is assessing new technologies uh, as a inclusive participatory process. So in Latin America, there's uh, TECLA, which is a Latin America network for the social evaluation of technology. In Africa, there's uh, AFRITAP, the African Technology Assessment Platform, and Asia Pacific, a TAP app, the Technology Assessment Platform for Asia Pacific. And uh, there, are, there are similar initiatives in, in North America and Europe. And what they're really saying is, let's not rush, let's have different perspectives, different experiences of how technologies have affected particularly peasant farmers, uh, indigenous people, fisher folk in the past, and use that to inform uh, how 
technologies are developed in the future. And that is exactly the language that we were in Montreal trying to protect. Uh, so in the the global biodiversity framework, which was one of the things agreed in Montreal, some language has survived about technology assessment. It was really hammered um, by uh, the agrochemical companies and their friends in, in some of the countries that were there, some of the parties, but it has survived. And so we will continue to support grassroots initiatives to assess new technologies, but also try and defend the right of indigenous peoples, uh, peasant farmers to actually have their expertise, their lived expertise of growing crops, of uh, using their knowledge of seeds and uh, uh, different breeds and, and varieties uh, and their experience of, of ecological change and, and human rights to inform uh, how these new technologies are developed, if at all. And of course, if you are to have uh, free prior and informed consent, which is at a cornerstone of the uh, the CBD, then that must also be the right to say no to certain technology and just say, no, this is a bad technology. So uh, I do think as you apply that to digital, it actually means um, not rushing because actually uh, the the dangers of a rush to digital uh, seem to us far greater than the danger of just taking it slow. I mean, uh, many of us in the late 90s were saying slow down with uh, GMOs and uh, we are not at all surprised that 20 or so years later, the, the, the fact that there wasn't the uh, checks and balances that should have been has led to uh, a, a, a appalling outcome in terms of both biodiversity and human rights. Great. Uh, thank you for making those connections. It's obviously an ongoing conversation. And, you know, thank you so much, Tom, uh, for taking the time to speak today. I, I really appreciate it. Sure. Thanks. That was a conversation with Tom Wakeford, uh, who is a member of the ETC group that is an international organization um, that was present in the context of the COP15 meetings in Montreal and was pushing to uh, limit the controls of tech giants within the agricultural uh, systems globally um, and looking at the ways that digital technologies are being pushed and used to uh, remove grassroots control of peasant and indigenous communities over farming lands. I really encourage you to follow and learn more about the ETC Group's work on this issue and other uh, important global issues. This has been Free City Radio. I'm your host in Montreal, Stefan Christophe. Thank you so much for being with us. We have a new uh, episode every week. Uh, we air um, on CKUT 90.3 FM in Montreal at 11 a.m. on Wednesdays on CJLO 1690 a.m. That is on Tuesdays at 1 p.m. on CKUW at 8 a.m. on Wednesdays in Treaty 1 territory of the Métis Nation in Winnipeg on CFRC at 11.30 a.m. on Wednesdays. Uh, that is at... 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario, and on CFUV at 9 a.m. on Wednesdays, 
that is at 101.9 FM in Victoria, British Columbia. You can find us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Look us up. Our archives are at soundcloud.com slash freecityradio. We'll be back soon. And I'll finish the episode this week with some music from a beautiful Turkish pianist, Bushra Keetsi, who is based in Istanbul. Uh, Here's one of her works. I'll talk to you next week and take care. (music) 